Take your Bible, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, or your electronic device and navigate your way to John, chapter 13. By the way, it's kind of a little bit of an understanding. It's a trust we have, right, that I'm trusting that when you're on your electronic device that you're, you're, you've got your Bible app open or maybe your notes app and you're flip-flopping between Bible and notes. And I'm just trusting that you're not on Instagram or you're not Snapchatting or you're not checking your Facebook feed. And so we just have this trust. I'll make you a promise that if you give your attention to God's word in these moments we have, so will I. Okay? So, uh, so that's what we have. John chapter 13. We're going to conclude this chapter this morning. But I want to begin with a question. Have you ever felt or ever had the rug pulled out from under you? Of course you have. We all have. Usually that means that something has caught us completely off guard. And not in a good way. And it leaves us scrambling for answers. It means that what you once thought was sure and steady is suddenly in upheaval. In those moments, you feel like you've lost your footing, your sense of stability and balance. Uh, Those moments have a way of changing your perspective in dramatic fashion. John 13 is a good example of this. I can't help but think that Christ's disciples, these men who were closer to Jesus than anyone, who had walked closely with him for three years by this time, were probably feeling like the rug was being pulled out from under them. They didn't know. They didn't know. They, they may have known. They may have, they, they, certainly they heard and they may have known somewhere up here, but they didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't really know that Jesus would very soon be arrested and, and tried and scourged and crucified. They can't see that far down the road. For them, things are happening in real time. All they know is that Jesus has gathered them together for Passover, that he's uh, inexplicably washed their feet, inexplicable because that was a particularly lowly task reserved for the the lowest of servants, the, the most lowly of servants. And they know that one of their very own, Judas Iscariot, they now know he was a traitor. Judas was a fraud, a phony, and it, and it happened right under their noses. Jesus knew, of course, but the disciples were none the wiser. So once Judas left, Jesus began to teach and reassure those 11 who remained. And, but initially, his teaching, 
initially his teaching did not seem all that reassuring to them. At a time when they couldn't make heads or tails of what was happening, Jesus was renewing and reframing their perspective. He wants them to know that he knows, that he's in control, and that they can trust him entirely. And so he speaks of his glory to come, and he gives them a guiding principle to live by. And in so doing, he puts forth a new command for this new community of believers. With that, let's read it together. John chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. When, when he, Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children... Yet, a little while, and I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for these moments we have in your word. Your word is life. Your word is truth. Your word is, we're told, it's, it's sweeter than honey. And I pray that as you feed us this morning from your word, that we would indeed taste and see that you are good. Will you bless, minister to, encourage, if necessary, convict, and grant faith to each one of us here in this room that we might be drawn into a closer fellowship with Christ and with one another and in so doing become a beacon of hope and life in this world of darkness. We praise you and you pray these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Here in this passage, we see the glory of Christ and the example of his love. In love for, in love for his glory, we're to love one another, each of which calls us to place our faith in him because Jesus 
has loved us to the fullest on the cross, we can love one another in fuller measure through him. Now is the Son of Man glorified, said Jesus, and God is glorified in him. In, in the Gospels, if you read the Gospels, and specifically the Gospel of John, you know that when Jesus refers to his glorification, to the time of his glorification, he's referring to his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection and ascension and ultimately his exaltation. And this word now in verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified, suggests that these events leading up to the cross have just been set in motion. In other words, when Judas left the room, the, the trap was sprung. Now it's about to go down. And the reference to the Son of Man is intentional. For with it, Jesus is drawing upon a vision recorded in Daniel 7, in which the prophet Daniel saw one, we're told, like a son of man, who received from God a kingdom comprised of all peoples and nations that will never come to an end. It is a glorious vision of triumph and absolute victory which alludes to the glory of the cross, Jesus, in other words, saw his crucifixion, hear this, as the pathway to his glorification. The glory of Christ and the glory of God are one and the same. Both Father and Son are glorified in the other. That's verse 32, basically. God is glorified in Jesus and also glorified Jesus, and he did glorify Jesus through his work on the cross. Well, we don't typically think of glory in this way, do we? This way of suffering as the pathway to glory, we want glory without suffering for obvious reasons. But suffering is the natural consequence of a world marred and broken by sin. And Jesus, in fact, suffered for sin, though he was without sin. Even those who opposed him, even those who carried out his crucifixion from the Jews to Pontius Pilate could not find him guilty of sin, which begs the question, if, if Jesus wasn't crucified for his sin, for whose sin was he crucified? And the answer, of course, is for our sin. On the cross, he bore our sins and became sin to defeat, and, 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 uh, to defeat sin and bring us back to God, our Heavenly Father, and so we must recognize that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as horrific as it was, is in fact the gateway to indescribable glory. Because the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, soon as, as my son said last night, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ soon burst forth into his resurrection. And then his ascension 
and his exaltation. The crucifixion was the domino that set in motion the other aspects of our great hope, our great salvation, God's saving work, the glory of God's saving work in this fallen world from one continent to the next, from one generation to the next, to rescue and redeem Uh, to redeem us from captivity and from the consequence of sin, our sin. On the cross, please hear this. We do not grieve a victimized Christ. We celebrate and trumpet the victorious Christ. The, The cross was the means by which he chose to defeat sin and Satan and deliver sinners from spiritual death. So on this Palm Sunday, as we enter Holy Week with Good Friday just five days away, do not grieve a victimized Christ. Rather, glory in the triumphant Jesus. There is glory in the cross, isn't there? Isn't that what we've been singing this morning? There is glory in the cross, which compels us, causes us to glory in the Christ. He's teaching us to glory in His glory and to love like He loves, to follow the example of His love, a point made very clear in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. And he calls this a new commandment, but but what makes it new? Because the command to love was not new. The, The command to love your neighbor as yourself goes all the way back to the Mosaic Law. But Jesus now expands upon the law by taking it to a whole new level. And that's what makes it new. What makes it new is that we're not simply to love our neighbor as ourself, but to love one another as Christ loves us. You see the difference? Love, as our culture typically defines it, is is just an emotion you fall in and out of. This is how love is almost always portrayed in books or movies or in pop music or even in many marriages today. As long as you feel love, great. But if your feelings change, move on. And even the dictionary defines love 
as an intense feeling of deep affection. And so love, as the world imagines it, is self-love. Love that depends on how you feel at any given moment in time. But the love of Christ is not feelings-based. The standard is not self-love. It's not even to love your neighbor as yourself. Rather, it's selfless love. It's divine love. It's supernatural love. It's otherworldly love that compelled him to endure the cross and all of its shame for your betterment and mine. It's sacrificial love. It's others-centered love. It's love in action. In short, we might say it this way. It's gospel-centered love. It's love that's rooted in the gospel and emerges from the gospel. In other words, church, what Jesus demands of the church, what he demands from us, is to practice what we preach. We preach the gospel of God's love in and through Jesus Christ. And for this reason, because we have received Jesus as a love gift from God, and because we know the love of God firsthand, Jesus wants us, no, he commands us to love each other in like manner. So it's no surprise that love like this must begin in the church, right? The world doesn't know love like this. We do. And so perhaps the closest we get to demonstrating this love, true Christ-like love, stay with me, is how we treat those in the church who are different from us, who disappoint us, who test our sensibilities, and who even sin against us. Isn't that what makes 1 Corinthians 13 so attractive? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love, love hopes all things and endures all things. Love never ends. Isn't that what makes Colossians 3 so applicable? Put on then, church, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and 
If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, above all these, put on love, which binds it all together in perfect harmony. Isn't that what makes 1 John 3 so Christ-like? By this we know, love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Did you hear that? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. To love like Jesus is to lay down your life for others. Now, for us, it may not require a literal dying in their place as Jesus did in ours, but we're to model the, the same selflessness, the same readiness to sacrifice our rights for their good, uh, the same willingness to endure. Oh, this is so hard. The same Willingness to endure injustice for their sake, if indeed that's what they need most. To love like Jesus is to reach out and include others, especially those who are different than you. That's why hospitality is such a Christian virtue. Because hospitality in the biblical sense isn't just opening your home to hang out with people you know, but it's opening your lives to welcome even those you don't know. The church is to be a welcoming community that includes all people regardless of age, gender, race, background, education, influence, and socioeconomic standing. And one of the things that I am most looking forward to, and I, I suspect you as well, one of the things I am most looking forward to about heaven is the wide variety of people who will be there. Because the love of Christ extends to the far reaches. And so, we're confronted by the challenge of this commandment. And as we process what it means for me and for you, what it means for us, for our lives, for the way we go about our lives, for how it's going to be this afternoon with the people we interact, how it's going to be tomorrow when we go back to to work or kids are on spring break, but how it's going to be. We're confronted with what's this going to look like? And maybe it begins with some questions, just helping you to assess where you're at, who in your life, who in your Christian community, who do you find difficult to include? Who... Who tests your patience? 
Who do you tend to avoid or ignore? Who do you secretly wish would just go away? Or who has wronged you? And with whom do you keep a record of wrongs? Yep, did it again. They did it again. Confronted by the question, how will we love them, those people, those people? Because Jesus Christ says to each one of us, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. It's no longer love your neighbor as yourself. Now it's love them like I love you. And I want you to notice the effect that this love has on the watching world, verse 35. By this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Whereas verse 34 is more inward in nature and concerns the church itself. Verse 35 is more outward, notice. Love in the church substantiates its witness in the world. So implied in what Jesus says here is the expectation that the disciples would be out and among all people. I think Andre made a great point in his sermon last week when he was talking about how the disciples prayed for boldness about the reason for their prayer. And the reason they were praying was the opposition they were facing. And the reason they were facing opposition from the outside world is why? Because they were out in the world. Listen, the world doesn't care about you or about what you believe as long as you keep to yourself. But the church in Acts, a church, by the way, led by these very same apostles uh, uh, with whom Jesus is, is speaking here, that church was united in love and involved in their community. They were advancing the gospel in Jerusalem and praying for boldness as they did so. In love for Christ and one another, they went out in love for the lost. One of Satan's most effective strategies is Christian infighting. It's getting us fighting amongst ourselves, usually over trivial things, right? To distract us or to the point where we forget or neglect the real battle over lost souls. 
I've never been in the military. There was a time coming out of high school that I thought I was going in the military. And then the summer of my graduation changed everything, and I knew in that point that God was calling me in the ministry. I've never been in the military, but I've heard enough from those who have to know that soldiers who are united and focused on the mission are much more effective. Working as one, they even testify that sometimes in battle, the thing that keeps them going is the love and camaraderie they share within their own unit. In a sense, they're fighting for their friends and their friends are fighting for them. They have each other's backs and as you know, that can make all the difference. Athletes in team sports say the same thing. So where are my Giants fans? Give, give, me a, give me a hand raise here. Come on, raise them proud. Yeah, that's right, spring training. There we go. How many of you remember Hunter Pence in the 2012 playoffs? Down two games to the Cincinnati Reds and on the brink of elimination, Pence gathered his teammates and he said, this was impromptu, this was spontaneous, it was coming from the soul, if you hear reports of what was said. And, and basically what he said is, I love you guys. I love playing with you guys. I want to play one more day with you guys. He didn't call them to win the game. But he called them to win the little moments within the game, each at bat, each pitch, each inning, which led to winning the game. And they went on to win that series and then beat the St. Louis Cardinals in the next series and then the Detroit Tigers to claim the World Series victory. The point is that brotherly love is a powerful force. But as powerful as it is in sports or in the military, it is much, much, much more powerful in the church because in the church we are united by nothing less than God himself. We are united by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. We are united in the love of God so that as we love each other, the world cannot help but stand up and take notice and be affected for the kingdom. Brotherly love is a powerful force. I think that's part of what Jesus is getting at. If you're going to do what I'm calling you to do, you're going to need to do it together. Well, Peter, to love like that, to love like that, 
to love like Jesus on a fundamental level, that requires trust. Certainly requires trust amongst us. But even more so, it requires that we trust him. Verses 36 and 38 are essentially about trust. Will we trust and therefore obey the Lord, or will we rely on our own limited understanding? Peter was having a hard time with what Jesus was saying and still hung up on the fact that Jesus was leaving. Lord, where are you going? And why can't I go with you? And the question, of course, makes perfect sense. These men had left everything to follow Jesus. Even when Jesus was facing opposition, uh, still they followed at the risk of their own lives. Uh, Certainly Jesus had been telling them what was coming all along, but sometimes, isn't this true? Sometimes things just don't sink in until it's actually happening. We've been there. Sometimes you... (laughs) something you've known about, something you knew was coming, but you really didn't want to acknowledge, so you avoid it or you put it off, but eventually that thing arrives and you're forced to face it. And facing it can be troubling. And so Jesus reassured them, even as he reassures us that, that though they could not come with him now they would eventually he wasn't deserting them he he was instead blazing the trail to bring them to God as he promises a promise in this next section in chapter 14 that he would return for them in due time but but that was part of Peter's problem Peter didn't want later Peter didn't want afterwards Peter didn't want in due time Peter wanted now That's part of our problem, too. Like the disciples on the eve of the cross, we can be so close to what God is doing, so close to the eternal reality, and yet still be thinking only in temporal terms. They thought Jesus was going to a new town or another region but he wasn't talking about going somewhere on earth. He's talking about heaven. Jesus was seeing things from an eternal perspective. They were just looking only through the earthly lens. There's an application here that we need to be asking eternal questions. We need to be assessing, continually assessing our current situation in light of eternal realities. Questions like, what's the bigger picture here? What's what's God up to? What, What kingdom is he building? And how does my particular situation point to or prepare me for the eternal city of God? How how does my particular situation point to or prepare me for the eternal city of God. 
what are we to make of the, of the political climate in our nation today? Don't answer that out loud. We've got to keep it clean. 
Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere is faith tested more than in those moments when we have a simple choice to either rely on our own understanding or rely on God. As a young man being at a uh, uh, Christian conference, I was a young Christian at the time, and the speaker said, remember the speaker saying how, how willing he was to die for Christ. That if, if, the opportun- not the opportun- if the moment ever came where he was given the choice to either deny Christ or die, that he hoped he would be committed enough to choose death. I think most of us would say close to the same thing, wouldn't we? I think that's basically what Peter is saying. And then the speaker went on to say this, and this was his point. He said, we may be willing to die for Christ, but how many of us are willing to truly live for Christ? When it seems like the rug is being pulled out from under you, when life takes an unexpected turn, when you don't understand what God is up to, that's precisely when living for Jesus is put to the test. Those are the rubber meets road moments that require, they require, they require you to come to this place where you're surrendering your agenda to His. So John 13 ends with a glimpse of Christ's glory and a glimpse of our own human failure to trust him. And yet the wonder in all of this is that failure in the Christian life is never final because Even Peter, one of the the dearest disciples, failed miserably. And yet before John's gospel is finished, he will be fully restored. Peter will be fully restored. And he'll become a pillar in the first church of Jerusalem, a man whom God used in powerful ways, a powerful instrument in the church and in the advance of the gospel in the world. You see... Jesus remains faithful even when our faith fails. What was it that changed for Peter? It was the work of Christ in his life. And it was Peter coming to trust Christ with his life. And in that is our sweet hope. That is our sure confidence. Because Jesus has loved us to the fullest on the cross, we can love and trust Him. And we can love one another in fuller measure as He loves. And we can let the world know 
that by our love we are his. Amen. There is a There's a wonderful glory in the cross. Your cross, dear Jesus, thank you for enduring the cross and despising its shame and for the joy set before you. You did so, knowing that that you would redeem a people For yourself from this world and bring us to God. Forever. Will you help us this morning, each one of us, to glory in your glory and thus to glorify you? And we cannot glory in your glory if we do not love you. Thank you for your love poured out for us that teaches us, compels us, causes us to love you in response. And in this love relationship with you, this eternal relationship, will you help us to love one another? Will you... Help us to put this kind of love into practice in the church, in our church. Thank you for the many folks who are here who demonstrate this kind of love to me and to each other. We pray that you would continue to unite us in brotherly love and that we would be like that military unit that, 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 that fights side by side, having each other's back, focused on the mission at hand. We pray that we would be like those teammates who just love each other and love serving and ministering together and want to minister at least one more day, day after day. And we pray that you would cause our love to go forth into this world to great effect, that we would indeed be, that you would be about the work of upbuilding this church, the church, your church worldwide, the, the global church that spans time and place. You are building your church and we're a part of it. So would you upbuild us and use us for the advancement of your gospel in this dark world. We bless you. We thank you. We trust you. We love you because you have first loved us. And so we pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.